Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. We want to start this episode by thanking everybody who has listened so far, everybody who's given us feedback, everyone who's subscribed to Patreon. It means a lot to us, and we wanted to let you all know before you find out, because we're not posting anything, that we are taking a summer vacation. And so after the next episode that will be released following this episode, we will be going on summer vacation until September. If you need a fix of Lethal Dose during the summer, highly suggest you subscribe to Patreon. We'll be doing some patron-exclusive episodes as well as some movie nights. Mm-hmm. And we'll be continuing to post once a month, so you will be getting regular episodes still, just not bi-weekly. Yes, you will be able to maintain the... What's the word, Kayla? The therapeutic dose. Exactly. Exactly. Which is the tier that is currently available on Patreon. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you. We also wanted to give some sort of incentive for joining our Patreon. It is only $2 a month, but I do understand that that can be tough for people. But we are going to be hosting a giveaway soon, and we've actually already started that. If you want to find out what the details for that giveaway are, head over to our social media it just involves you reposting some stuff, trying to get more traffic to our social media so that we can get more friends listening. And we will choose one of you at random to get free Patreon membership for a year, which I think is pretty cool. It's a pretty big deal. You get to join the club. Join the club. Yeah. And you get to join in on polls and discussions and all of our transcripts. I don't know if people know this necessarily, but all of the transcripts for all of the episodes are already available to the public on Patreon. Yep, you so, don't have to be a patron mm -mm. to get those. But you do get more content if you sign up, and we try to make it worth your $2. And if we get more people signed up on Patreon, we will be adding more tiers so that you'll be able to get more content, including ad-free content, because when we come back for the summer, we will have retroactively begun starting advertisements on these main channel episodes. So sorry about that. Girls got to eat. We will be adding advertising. It's true. And you will get advertisement-free episodes if you subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. And we thank you. We appreciate you. Even we if do. you can't subscribe, a share is always appreciated. Totally. Totally. Thank you so much for everything you do. I mean, listens are what's important, too. And if you're listening, thanks. A quick note before the episode begins. This episode contains discussion of suicide and self-harm, and Venus and I take our time to think about the different sides of the case that we present today, which specifically involves teenage suicide. I want to make it clear, especially for any minors who are listening, that we do not condone any kind of abusive language, and that we also believe that we have a social duty to help each other. Sometimes the weight of the duty is too much for the individual who feels the weight, or we are unsure of the true gravity of someone's situation. Being a teenager is hard enough, and it should not be exacerbated by being the only person trusted with a dangerous secret. Venus and I did not have easy childhoods. We understand that it can be hard to try to help someone. But both of us would have carried the guilt of silence if anything had happened to our friends, who we knew were in pain but we did not speak out about. 
If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal ideation, expressions of self-harm, an eating disorder, addiction, or any other kind of mental illness, go to a trusted adult. If you do not have a trusted adult, as we did not, we encourage you to call the suicide hotline, which can be done anonymously and even if you're not suicidal. That number is 1-800-273-8255. Stop me if you've heard this one. One day, you find a yellow post-it note in your tiny Massachusetts apartment with a handwriting you don't recognize. It's a list to remind you of some errands you need to do, but you don't remember telling anyone else about these errands. It's odd, but since you didn't tell anyone else about this mental to-do list that became a physical to-do list, you figure you just did it while sleepwalking. The handwriting doesn't look like yours because it was sloppily scrawled in a dream state, right? So you throw out the post-it and you forget about it. Four days later, another post-it appears with the same handwriting. It reminds you to make sure you, quote, saved my documents. You're a little freaked out, and you're a little sure you weren't sleepwalking, but you're not entirely sure. You decide to set up a webcam pointed at your desk where the post-it notes live, and you set it to record after detecting motion. Nothing more happens for eight days, and then another post-it note appears. It reads, our landlord isn't letting me talk to you, but it's important that we do. You forget about the first list with the errands you had told no one about, and you freak out. You're convinced that you're being stalked, and someone is breaking into your apartment to mess with you. You check your webcam and find nothing recorded from the night before, but you notice that your computer's recycling bin has been emptied. Mm. Something was captured. But whoever is doing this to you was wise to it and deleted the files from their folder and from your computer permanently. Who could this be? Could it be another neighbor? Does the landlord have something to do with it? A few days later, you find another note. This time, it's on the outside of your apartment door and there's nothing written on it. But you notice that you're not alone. Many of the other doors in your building also have blank post-it notes on them and all the pastel colors the sticky note squares come in. You're freaked out. You still have the last few notes, and so you try to compare the handwriting to any other pieces of handwriting you have available. Is a friend messing with you, or is this an enemy, or is this an ally with a common enemy? Is it your landlord? To your surprise, you believe that a letter you received from your landlord when you moved in matches this handwriting exactly. What the hell is this conspiracy? You can't go on like this. You're on edge. You're living in a small, windowless apartment. You don't know what recourse to take. And for advice, you head to the internet to see what you can learn. In 2016, a Redditor named rbradbury1920 posted that this was happening to them on the r slash legal advice subreddit in a post entitled, M.A. Post-it notes left in apartment. M.A. probably to mean Massachusetts. Mm. rbradbury1920 had no idea what was happening, but thought that maybe their landlord was stalking them. And several other Redditors responded, attempting to give what legal advice they could based on their own experiences or what they knew secondhand, which I guess is what the r slash legal advice is for. Mm -hmm. They suggested try password protecting your computer and setting up the webcam again. Back up the recording somewhere immediately so that it can't be easily deleted. See a doctor. You're probably sleepwalking. See a therapist. You're hallucinating. And honestly, all of this could have been overlooked and written off as a poor soul developing a mental illness and becoming paranoid which I guess isn't uncommon in the r slash legal advice Reddit. People are like, hey, I'm being stalked, and it's just mm -hmm. paranoia coming on. But 
another Redditor named Kakerlack thought the situation actually sounded familiar to him. Mm. He had a hunch. He went to check out the rest of our Bradbury 1920s posts to see what was up. And from the looks of it, there was no buildup of paranoia, no other indications of mental illness or mischief from their other posts on Reddit. He did see that our Bradbury 1920 had made a post asking for advice about how to best arrange furniture in a cramped, windowless apartment in Boston. Now, Kakerlack's real name is Ken Roach, and he's an engineer who lives on a boat in Seattle. And as a water voyager, he'd heard a number of stories about adventures gone wrong, including one where a man fell asleep and woke up hours later in his boat with no idea where in the water he was. He was totally naked, and he was covered in feces. Yikes. Yeah. Now, Ken also had a bad experience on his boat one night with his wife and his dog. He and his wife had split a bottle of wine and gotten very tired, but Ken had also gotten very hot despite the cool weather. He opened a window to get some fresh air and went to sleep. And it was lucky that he'd opened the window because he'd left the boat's stove on and gas had been leaking out into the living quarters. Ken and the man whose story he remembered, the one who was covered in shit out in the middle of nowhere, had both survived carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm-hmm. So Ken Kakerlack replied to the post and lightly suggested that this could be mental illness or maybe just sleeplessness, but also that R. Bradbury 1920 could be suffering from low-grade chronic carbon monoxide poisoning. He recommended getting a carbon monoxide detector and also mentioned that another side of carbon monoxide poisoning would be having bad headaches. R. Bradbury 1920 responded that they had, in fact, been having headaches, and so they thought that this carbon monoxide poisoning might have something to it. They plugged in the detector, which they already had, but it was for some reason not installed in their apartment, and it should have been legally installed by the landlord, so this was in part the landlord's fault, even though it wasn't a conspiracy of any kind, and it read 100 parts per million. Is that a lot? Yeah. <laughs> so... Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas produced by the incomplete combustion of carbon-based materials like cigarette smoke and car exhaust. In heavy urban traffic, air concentrations of carbon monoxide can be as high as 50 parts per million. So he was sitting in a room that didn't have the smell of sitting in traffic, but he was basically in heavy traffic all the time. Mm -hmm. Sitting in a smoky room, like from cigarette smoke, for an hour and a half can create an atmospheric concentration of 200 parts per million and cause the carboxyhemoglobin concentration in a non-smoker to raise to 30%. Now this is important. Carboxyhemoglobin is a molecule that is formed when carbon monoxide binds with the hemoglobin in your blood. Because of the molecular shape of O2, just pure oxygen, which normally binds with hemoglobin mm -hmm. to create oxygenated hemoglobin, which is also called oxyhemoglobin, and the shape of carbon monoxide, hemoglobin actually preferentially binds with carbon monoxide about 200 times better than with oxygen. That's crazy. So the thing that's bad for us is more favorable. Luckily, it is a reversible binding, but it's still a more favorable binding. And it's one of those things when people are like, oh, we're intelligently designed. I'm like, are we though? Are we? <laughs> right. Carboxyhemoglobin concentrations in non-smokers is usually around 1% to 2%. In smokers, it can be around 5 to 6% just because you're getting that constant intake of carbon monoxide. Concentrations up to 10% can affect a person's ability to perform strenuous mental and physical tasks because you're slowly suffocating from lack of oxygenated mm. blood. Concentrations from 15 to 25% can cause dizziness and nausea, and concentrations upwards of 50% are life-threatening and can present as headache, nausea, weakness, confusion, stupor, and coma. And let me remind you that our Bradbury 1920 said that his read 100 parts per million, 
And so he could have been sitting at about that 15%. But mm -hmm. if he was experiencing it the entire time he was in his apartment, it might have been higher because he was getting that constant intake of mm -hmm. carbon monoxide. Approximately 10 to 15% of carbon monoxide also binds with other proteins, not just hemoglobin, but also myoglobin in the cardiac muscle and can impair oxidative phosphorylation in the cardiac muscle. This causes chest pain, arrhythmia, tachycardia, myocardial infarction, which is a way of saying a heart attack and permanent oh, heart damage. Okay. Mm -hmm. So carbon monoxide can actually cause you to have a heart attack because the heart goes into overdrive to maintain the O2 levels to the brain, which are already mm. decreased because of the competitive binding of carbon monoxide to hemoglobin. Because it's like, oh, we need more oxygen here. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to beep, 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 beep to try to up that. It overloads and it's just like, I'm done. Yeah, exactly. Luckily for our Bradbury 1920, poisoning can be reversed fairly easily. Carbon monoxide only has a half-life of four to five hours. Administration of 100% O2 can reduce the half-life to one hour or less so that you're just totally eliminating any of the carbon monoxide that's bound to your hemoglobin. Unfortunately, not all of the effects are reversible. Victims mm. can develop long-term impairments in memory and concentration, as well as depression and Parkinsonianism that may present a day or so after the effects of poisoning have worn off or be delayed by up to four weeks. Oh, gosh. And that's if you had too much coming in for a while? I don't think that it's necessarily dose-dependent. I think it's just mm. dependent on the individual. So if you start experiencing these things and then you get therapy and you mm -hmm. clear out your apartment and all of that, I think you can still end up with motor impairment and you can end up with Ugh. things like depression and memory loss. Yikes. Yeah. So these all sound like accidents, though. Like something happened in the home. We didn't realize there was a gas leak, but it sounds like his landlord wasn't actually messing with him like he had kind of thought. No, he was just being a shitty landlord. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So are we talking about an accident today? Definitely not. No, we're talking about a suicide using carbon monoxide that led to a homicide trial. Oh. Conrad Roy III grew up in Mattapoisette, Massachusetts to a boating family. So he was on the water of the eastern coast from the time he was born. By high school, he rowed crew and worked full-time for his family's tugboat company. In 2012, Conrad's family went to Naples, Florida to visit some family. Conrad was 16 at the time, and his aunt introduced him to another teenage girl from Massachusetts with family in Florida. Her name was Michelle Carter. They hit it off and began texting constantly, but even though they were both from Massachusetts, they lived an hour away from each other and only saw each other in person five times during their two-year-long relationship. Conrad, also unfortunately in high school, became the child of divorce, which caused some strain on him. His grades began slipping. He told his parents he was having a hard time remembering things and staying focused. He struggled with social anxiety and depression. He actually made a, a pretty infamous, as far as this trial goes, video about his social anxiety mm. and trying to overcome mm. it. But he also felt like he wasn't understood by any of the counselors or therapists that he was recommended to. Michelle also suffered from mental illness, and at age 11, she developed anorexia so that by 14, she was on Prozac for depression. In a way, I think that they bonded over this shared struggle that they had. I think that's totally fair. I mean, I have friends that I made in high school who had depression and anxiety, and it was like one of those things where, especially when you're young, that it might not be as common mm -hmm. as some people think. And so when you find somebody that has going through that similar struggle, you're like, 
Oh my gosh, somebody gets it. Unfortunately, they didn't create any sort of healthy bonds. They expressed suicidal ideation to each other pretty frequently. And although Conrad was receiving treatment through a group and was on antidepressants, he attempted to overdose on acetaminophen when he was 17. And that's just like Tylenol, right? It's similar. Acetaminophen isn't an NSAID, mm-hmm. but it, it's a painkiller. It, it, okay. it does essentially the same thing. Yeah, and it like overloads the liver or something, right? It can. All of those painkiller things, like you can't even really alternate between aspirin, acetaminophen, ibuprofen because it does kind of impact the liver. If you're taking any of them for an extended period of time, they're like, hey, you should see a doctor and maybe get something else. Mm -hmm. So it's unclear if this was his first suicide attempt, but it wasn't his last. He actually made a total of four suicide attempts during his and Michelle's relationship. And they also discussed multiple methods of suicide over the course of their relationship. It was something that they talked about somewhat casually, but there was also this and it's it's hard to say because I remember being a teenager like that and it's kind of like, were they just being edgy or were they saying this is what I want to do? And so right. they talked about it a lot. Especially if you're a depressed high schooler, there is something to looking into those things. But then mm-hmm. it's like, just like with true crime, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost this morbid fascination. But is mm-hmm. it like, like you said, am I doing this to be edgy? Am I into researching different suicide methods because I'm actually thinking about it? Yeah. Or is it just because I want to know what's out there? Exactly. I'm curious and I want to think about it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So as it often is with mental illness, Conrad's struggles would wax and wane. He was able to obtain his captain's license for boating by the time he was 18 by taking night classes through high school. And he still maintained a 3.88 grade point average by the time he graduated. He had also been accepted to Fitchburg State University, where he had applied to a business program and received a four-year scholarship, but he was uncertain if he wanted to go. He and his mother were discussing this decision on July 12th during a day at the beach when he and his sisters were visiting their mother at her home. He walked the family's golden retriever, he joked about bathing suits with his mom, he bought his sister's ice cream. He didn't appear to be anxious or isolating or in any way experiencing a depressive episode. But text messages would later reveal that during this trip, he was actively texting Michelle to plan out the details of his suicide for the following day. For two weeks leading up to July 12, 2014, Conrad and Michelle had been discussing different methods of suicide. And together, they decided that Conrad would kill himself with carbon monoxide using a gas-powered water pump. When Conrad would suggest that he was straying from the plan, I don't really want to do this, I'm not really feeling like it, Michelle would send texts encouraging him to do it, and these became extremely incriminating when the texts came out. When Conrad finally drove his grandfather's truck to a Kmart parking lot to get some privacy for his final act, he continued to call and text Michelle throughout the evening, and she went so far as to tell him to get back in the truck. They had approximately two 45-minute long phone conversations over the course of the night while he was scared and crying and inhaling the carbon monoxide from the gas generator. Far from telling him not to do it or trying to alert the family to his plans and his whereabouts, Michelle actually did text all of his family members pretty regularly, so she did have direct access to them. But she was adamant that he go through with this plan, and she later told a friend that she was on the phone with him while he was crying in pain from dying and heard him take his last breath. So how long did it take for them to realize that she really did urge him? I had friends who were suicidal in high school and talked about it, boyfriend who talked about doing it, and it's like the natural response mm-hmm. is to tell somebody, no, there's another way. I love you. I'm here for you, etc. Mm-hmm. Instead of, 
yeah, you should do that. Go ahead and kill yourself now. And don't be like, get back in the truck and finish the thing. That's the kind of difficult part about this. I don't think Michelle Carter was right. And to answer your question, they realized pretty soon that she was encouraging him to do it. And they found Mm -hmm. the texts because he left a suicide note. And in the suicide note, he Mm -hmm. left the password to his computer. He left the code to his phone. And so when they were able to get his phone charged again, they were able to pull up all of these texts. And they were able to see all of the final texts Mm -hmm. and all of the final calls. And then they were able to get a warrant for the phone records. But... It, it took a while for people to look beyond the text that they were sent that night and to see that it was Conrad's decision and it was Michelle telling him to do it. But there was also a little bit more nuance to it. They, they were just depressed kids living in that depression void that, like, as I was watching the documentary on this that's on HBO, it's called I Love You Now Die. Mm-hmm. Like, I totally had friends like this. I don't know that I would have gone as far as to tell any of my friends, just kill yourself. But they were friends that they would tell you that they were depressed every day and that they were thinking of killing themselves every day. And every day you were like, well, you showed up today. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Or, or they would talk about hurting themselves every day. And at some point you're just like, you're just, you're going to do it, whether or not I'm here for you, whether or not right. I say don't do it. And so that's obviously not what Michelle was doing. She was actively telling him to do it. Right. But There's a difference. There's a difference between being a bystander of somebody who's going through their struggle Mm -hmm. versus egging them on. Like that's like telling somebody, no, get closer to the edge of the bridge. Get closer. You're not putting your toe over. Right. Well, and that's the example that they give. There was no precedent in Massachusetts at the time for any sort of like bullying that led to suicide or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And so they ended up charging her with involuntary manslaughter. There was a lot of debate about, does this violate her First Amendment right because she's allowed to say things? It's not hate speech, this and that. But I also just think neither of them were living in reality. And he was kind of a dickhead teenage boy to her. And so mm-hmm. you could go as far to say as their relationship was emotionally abusive. There was this doctor who was trying to say that she was simultaneously manic because she had just had her antidepressants replaced. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to find a way out of the relationship, which I don't think you can say that she is capable of understanding she needs to get out of the relationship and also mentally impaired enough to not know what she's doing. Yeah, I found that really, I found it interesting, Mm -hmm. but I didn't buy it. Yeah. But if she is being, if she was being emotionally abused in some way. Maybe her subconscious was thinking like, we've got to get out, but then We've got it. Yeah. I mean, is is it kind of bordering on a Gypsy Blanchard thing where you think you're trapped in a way and there's no other mm-hmm. way out? I don't think what she did was right. I do think that what he did was his own decision. But you should never tell somebody, get back in the truck when they're trying to kill themselves. If I remember correctly from the documentary, that ultimately was the big part mm-hmm. where they decided that she was in the wrong. If he had killed himself... That was his decision, and this still was his decision. He got out of the car because Mm -hmm. he was dying, Mm -hmm. and he was crying and in pain, and then she basically put it to his head, like, no, you need to get back in. Right, right. And people want to say, well, she was trying to tell him that she was going to have him get help if it didn't work or if X number of days passed. And it's like, you should have just told somebody. And he was telling her, my family knows and they don't care, which I heard growing up. I heard a lot of my depressed friends say, Mm -hmm. my family knows and they don't care. And you're just not living, you're not living in reality, which is a hard thing to say. Like if somebody is listening and they are a teenager or they're in a depressive episode, it's hard to be like, yeah, I am. Like, I know what reality is. Things are real, but. 
it's it's different different things are are focused you're hyper focused on the bad Mm -hmm. instead of understanding the full spectrum of what's going on in the world around you I guess if that makes like you're just so on the negative side that that's all you can see and that's all you can deal with you have Mm -hmm. the weight of the world holding you down Mm -hmm. even though sure there are other things going on but when you're depressed you're incapable of seeing the other side exactly And I mean, and it does happen with people like that psychiatrist who testified that she was in a med, I can't remember the term that they used, but the medication that she was on incapacitated her. Involuntarily intoxicated, I think is what they said. And it's like that can happen with, but when there's a pattern of behavior, Mm -hmm. like a prolonged pattern of behavior that's what makes it harder for me to Mm -hmm. deal with if this happened like a one-off but it's like no they talked about this for months yeah they talked about it a lot and she didn't tell anybody about it she kept threatening to get help really was what she was doing was saying i'm gonna make you and i i get that because mental hospitals are not good places to be in and i'm sure he didn't want to go back right but she was kind of threatening that she was gonna get him help and that's not healthy to do either and i do think it's a good point that they made that everybody was like she was some kind of seductress and she just wanted attention i think that it's a good point that they were like women do not have all the power and that takes away conrad's agency to act on his own free will to say that Mm, she was this mm -hmm. mastermind behind all of it Mm-hmm. But obviously, if she There's had something a, else going on, yeah, yeah, she she's at fault for for some things. And so her defense during the trial contended that she was protected by freedom of speech. Conrad's choice was his own. Prosecution was cherry picking text messages to show the court and leaving out messages that encouraged Conrad to get help. But during the last few days of his life, those text messages became less and less frequent. And she was encouraging him more and more. You have to go through this. Why haven't you done it? Things like that. And I don't, you can go find the documentary, you can go find wherever these text messages are published, but I didn't feel like dredging them up just in case, you know, Conrad's family is looking him up, they hear this podcast or something on the off chance that they do. Like, I just don't want to have to reiterate exactly what those text messages said. Yeah, and I don't think it's important because, I mean, we're looking at the case from the poison standpoint. Like, Mm -hmm. we obviously need to cover the factors of the case. You know, what happened? How did they get there? But I don't think that's the focus. And it's also one of those, like you said, it's out there if you want to find it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So the trial to determine Michelle's guilt lasted for six days in June of 2017, by which time she was 20 years old. And for the trial, she had waived the right to a jury, so her fate was decided solely by the judge at the trial, who found her guilty of involuntary manslaughter due to failure to act and alleviate the risk of death to Conrad. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, they determined that she engaged in wanton and reckless conduct that precipitated his death. She could have faced 20 years in prison, but she was sentenced to only two and a half years suspended sentence with 15 months in jail for her role in his death and has since been released after only serving 11 months. That's wild. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, she she had her own issues. I think she needs help, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't know. I mean, Conrad's gone. Would Conrad be gone? If she had gotten him help. I I feel like we don't have the opportunity to know Mm -hmm. what his life would have looked like and where it would have gone without her in it because she played such a big role in his death. Mm -hmm. 
because there are people who attempt suicide and they attempt suicide multiple times Mm -hmm. and then one day some switch is turned and they lead a life without any further attempts yeah yeah that happens all the time Mm -hmm. and so i don't i don't know if it's fair for anybody to try to assume like Oh, he would have killed himself anyway if she wasn't involved. Totally. I've known friends who were suicidal and who did multiple attempts over years and now they're living their best life. So Mm -hmm. I don't think it's fair to say he would have killed himself if she was involved or not. True. If we take Michelle out and we take out everything that people might feel personally about her and what she did and you just look at somebody not getting help for somebody they do raise an interesting point about the duty that you have to other people and how you can convict criminally because i knew kids in high school that hurt themselves every single day and if that escalated to them killing themselves did i have a duty to inform somebody i mean i probably should have i probably should have said like this person's hurting themselves but there's also the issue of will they face worse consequences at home i don't know what their home life is like right i mean will things just get worse for them I don't know. It's hard because if you reach out in a way to try to help someone, it could be interpreted as the person you're quote unquote helping Mm -hmm. that you're hurting them and that you violated a trust between the two of you. Yeah. By trying to get them that help. Especially as teenagers. Because now now if there was a teenager that was hurting themselves, I mean, I probably would just go to their parent and be like, do you know that this Mm -hmm. is up? Right. Don't come at them, you know, Mm -hmm. be gentle about it and get them help. But I noticed that this is up and I think, you know, something should be said. But as a teenager, I didn't do that. And I'm a different person now, but I'm also also that adult, you know. And I Mm -hmm. think as an adult, you definitely have more of that duty and you more understand that duty. And as a kid... You're just so in your own bubble. And I think this bubble was even worse because they were just in this bubble of depression, only talking to depressed kids. Well, and when you're having a relationship basically through text also, Mm -hmm. it's hard because there's so many things, especially if you are depressed, that you're going to look into different texts and different messages in a way different way than if you were speaking to somebody in person. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it distorts reality, I think, more than we realize and more than we could have realized because I think these kids were a bit younger than than me, maybe, but not far off from growing mm-hmm. up in that in that world of constantly talking to your friends through IM and text and messages and not necessarily being on the phone or seeing them in person to see mm-hmm. like how they're saying it and to, to have context. Right. I mean, they saw each other, what did you say, five times? Five times, yeah. Yeah, in person. Like, that doesn't give you a lot to go off of. Yeah. And this is pure speculation, but maybe if they did have more IRL connection, Mm -hmm. then maybe it wouldn't have been so easy for her to say, yeah, kill yourself. I mean, possibly. I thought about that, too, that he just maybe wasn't super real to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it's not saying it's right. It's that bullying thing where you're behind mirrored glasses and you're behind the internet. And so you can mm-hmm. just say random shit that you're like, why would you ever say that? You wouldn't say that to a person standing in front of you. Exactly. Uh. So in 2019, Michelle and her team argued that her conviction was a violation of the First Amendment right. However, the Massachusetts Supreme Court upheld the verdict and Michelle was forced to serve her two and a half year jail time with 15 months to be served and the rest suspended. She appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they rejected her appeal, and she was denied parole. However, 
She only served 11 months, and she was released in January of 2020, shortly after she appealed the U.S. Supreme Court and was denied. So she's out now. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's pretty wild. I mean, I know the charge that she had is not the same as a full-on murder charge. Mm -hmm. But still, to just think, 11 months, that's less than a year. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not a lot of time for a life lost. In my opinion. So the 11 months was because she had good behavior and all that. And so part of me wants to say that she was getting help and she was pulled out of her depression and she was properly medicated and all of X, Y, and Z that you hope the system is doing. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, is that what was happening? Or were they just saying, you're a white girl who isn't making much trouble in prison and so we're going to let you go? Is she a danger? Is she a danger to herself and others? I don't know. Right. Who knows what she's up to now? I don't know that I even want to like go down that route, but it's like, yeah. I hope that this experience will at least help her consider how her actions can affect others. Yeah, totally. In the future. Because words words hurt, guys. And words are powerful. So think about that before you start talking shit to some random person on the internet that you don't know and then you just decided you have a problem with. Or somebody that you love and you're just tired of hearing them say they're going to kill themselves. If you're right. tired of it, get them help and don't threaten that you're going to get them help. Right. Just do the thing. So I guess let's talk more about the carbon monoxide poisoning part of it. Yeah, let's stick to what we know. (laughs) Yeah, so I have a question. Yeah. It's used a lot in media. Mm -hmm. Like, I love this prison show from Australia. Wentworth? Yeah, the main character, she tried to kill her husband by Mm -hmm. putting him in his car in the garage. There's Midsummer. The family died that mm-hmm. way because the, the, the sister killed yeah. herself and her parents that way mm-hmm. in office space and you're telling me this show that i'm checking out now pushing daisies yeah they have one episode with it yeah okay so did he plug his tailpipe and then it was backing up the gas into his car or he did it with like a separate pump so he got a water pump that was gas fueled and he he obviously didn't have it pumping water he just had it running with the gas and so he had mm. that in the closed cab of the truck and that was what was emitting carbon monoxide he didn't have actually anything to do with the car and part of it was probably to remain inconspicuous because he wasn't in the family garage or anything he was just in a, a Kmart parking lot but depending on how old the truck was you can't actually gas yourself with cars anymore and i'm not saying that anybody needs to just be like oh this isn't a problem at all like you still need to be careful you shouldn't run your car in the garage and then run back inside and get something you shouldn't have people in the car when you're de-icing it because people have actually died that way that like dad warms the car up mom and the kids are in the car and then as he's de yeah yeah and but this is with older cars because newer cars have a catalytic converter that makes it so that carbon monoxide pretty much just isn't formed Oh, interesting. They're a lot more efficient. It is slightly dangerous, but especially after a drive to Kmart from his house, the carbon Mm -hmm. monoxide would be gone because the catalytic converter would be doing its job. And Mm so he had nothing to do with the engine of the truck. It was all the gas-generated water pump that he was using. And so I guess I have another question about when people would do it in the garage, do you even have to put some on the tailpipe and put it into the car or just the carbon monoxide that fills up the garage is enough? 
I think the carbon monoxide filling up the garage is probably enough because I Ugh. have seen suicides at the coroner's office where people did just run it in the garage and then you open up the garage and firefighters... I, I think that they respond to the scene and they already kind of know what's going on. Maybe a family member has found it or something and then they, they leave because of the danger and then they let them mm -hmm. know. But they'll actually have monitors and so then they can report that to the medical examiner and say, we opened mm -hmm. up the garage and it read so many parts per million of carbon monoxide. So you can just run it in the garage. I have seen uh. where somebody takes it from their tailpipe, they take a tube and they put it in their car. Yeah, that's more of what I imagined. People have done this accidentally, too. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, because if it can happen without you going through the whole nine of getting yeah. a tube and running it back in, like, that's yeah. dangerous. Yeah, it can be very dangerous, and it can happen very quickly. And it's just whenever you can't ventilate your car, so the ice covering your car, things like that. With the suicide by carbon monoxide we're familiar with, mm -hmm. what about just accidental deaths? What about in the houses? Sure, sure. So actually, most of the carbon monoxide that we're exposed to and that we get emergency room visits for or poison control calls for are accidental exposures in the home. And you may recall that earlier this year, there was that major horrific snowstorm in Texas that people mm -hmm. were totally unprepared for. They were freezing, their pipes burst, they lost power, they're being overcharged for the power they were getting, right? Yeah, that was a hot mess. Yeah. But one of the dangers that Texans were probably also specifically unaware of because it's just usually so warm in Texas was the danger of running a gas generator or using a stove inside. You and me might realize that there's an inherent danger and maybe most people would, but you know, these Texans, their pipes were bursting and they were just panicking. They were like, I have to keep my family. I have to keep them warm. I have to try right. to keep my house going. And so they were doing whatever they could to stay warm and maybe forgetting some of the inherent danger just because they were in a situation that they were totally unprepared for. Well, when you go into survival mode like exactly. that, yeah, of yeah. like, I'm cold, I'm freezing, my <laughs> family, my children are cold and freezing and like, we can't cook. I mean, you just go into how do I make this immediate thing that is bothering me better? Yeah. And every year, actually, every winter, emergency room visits and deaths from carbon monoxide poisonings increase because of people using barbecue pits, charcoal grills, campfire stoves. <sighs> portable generators, and car engines inside for warmth. And Texas was no exception. There were 300 cases of carbon monoxide, including two fatalities, during the first weekend of the storm this past February. Oh, my God. Brain damage can set in within minutes of being in an enclosed space with these kinds of devices emitting carbon monoxide, which I've said is colorless and odorless. And so you're just trying to stay warm. You're becoming dizzy. You can't smell anything. And then if you pass out, the danger is that much more intense because now you're being exposed to it and you can't get yourself out. And you don't even realize it. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it can go so zero to 100 because you don't realize that there's anything even wrong and then just like, oh, I'm passed out and I'm going to die now. Mm-hmm. That's scary how quick that can happen. Is the severity of the symptoms, is that reflected by how much carbon monoxide is emitted and what size of a space you're in? Like going back to Conrad's case, he had, I'm assuming, a pretty decent sized generator mm -hmm. like inside of his truck cab, which is a very small space. Mm -hmm. Would somebody have really strong negative effects quicker versus I mean like if they were in the house using... A charcoal grill? Probably because it's that concentration. So we put it in parts per million. And so mm -hmm. if you're in a, a small space, then you don't have that many millions of parts that you're going to be filling up. But if you're in a big house, then the millions of parts, you have to be emitting more in order to get up to 100 or 200 parts per million. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it is based on the size of the, the space for sure. <sighs> That's so crazy. And to just think that you could just 
have brain damage in minutes mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. And it'd be a total accident. Yeah. It's so sad. And then to elaborate on that a bit more, approximately 73% of carbon monoxides occur in the home, as I said. But a lot of this doesn't come from winter things. It can occur from just normal things that you use in your home. So generators or heating systems, appliances, engine-driven mm. tools, right? And so in our Bradbury's case, it was probably the water heater or something in the building was emitting that carbon monoxide from an incomplete combustion, but it could have been some of the appliances in his apartment and there was no ventilation because he didn't have any windows. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. It doesn't help that he didn't have any windows. Even if he just had a window cracked, it seems like it wouldn't have been so effective on exactly. him. Exactly. Yeah. So in our Bradbury 1920s case, it seems like that was going on for a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. He he to get that first note and then days later, other notes. So what are some of the effects of chronic exposure, like a leak like that in your house? They're basically the same as the acute. They become worse and worse, I guess, the more acute it becomes. So chronic low-level exposure can present with flu-like symptoms. You feel headachy or dizzy, nauseated all the time. There are reports similar to our Bradbury 1920 of people feeling confused, feeling sick all the time, and then eventually realizing they're being poisoned, which is a hard thing to realize when your mental faculties are failing. Right. He's not putting two and two together. Mm-hmm. Like, he's thinking somebody's breaking into his house and writing these post-it notes. Yeah. I mean, you go to the non-obvious... <laughs> conclusion when you're not all with it right the paranoia that you feel and the stalking that you fear they Mm -hmm. seem more likely than like oh i'm being poisoned in my house right Right. and i think it's interesting that these feelings of fear in the home and things like that they're a cornerstone of ghost stories too so is it ghosts in the home that are doing shit or are you experiencing a gas leak and you're kind of losing it a little bit Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so carbon monoxide detector could be what you need, not an exorcism. (laughs) Just saying. Just a little cheaper. (laughs) A little cheaper, and then getting Zach Bagans come out to your house. I actually love, I don't know what his name is, but I found on YouTube that there's a guy who's called like the, what is he even called? Paranormal Home Inspector. And so people are like, we hear voices and blah, blah, blah. And then he'll come in and he'll be like, yeah, you got raccoons living in your attic and like shit like that. Or he's like, oh my God, I love it. Yeah. He's like, your insulation actually isn't very good. And so there's a cold spot here because your insulation isn't very good. I love it. I love that. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's great. So these chronic symptoms are essentially the same for acute exposure, and that just happens more quickly and has the more dangerous immediate effect of loss of consciousness, which, like I said, can make it so that you can't escape from the Mm -hmm. gas and then you end up in a coma or dying. Or even especially thinking about it now, like it sounds like part of what might have saved him is leaving during the day, maybe like Mm -hmm. going to work. Mm -hmm. And so then he's not around it. But with so many of us working from home, Totally, totally. You know what I mean? Like you're not getting that reprieve Mm -hmm. from the poisoning that you're experiencing. Yeah. Well, that's what I think is interesting too about the ghost stories is in like the Amityville horror, which I think is a really good example where the father Mm. feels better when he leaves the home and then he comes home and he's agitated Mm. and confused all the time. Mm. I'm like, well, that is a really old house. (laughs) This is all explainable. How interesting. (laughs) So 
Aside from the brain damage, are mm-hmm. there any other long-term effects that stay around long-term or do they all kind of go away as long as the exposure ceases? It's hard to say because there are those effects that can be delayed. A day later, three weeks later, you could have cognitive changes. You can have decreased verbal expression and inability to care for yourself, muscle spasms. And I guess some of those will come and then they'll go away. And so the Parkinsonianism and things like that will be decreased after some time. And all of the like involuntary muscle spasms, those will be decreased. It's hard to say with some of the other ones because they might say, oh, this person is showing a difference in their affect. But it could just be that they tried to kill themselves and now they're mm. more depressed and more angry. Is it depression that's coming on because of the carbon monoxide or is it just like, oh, well, now you know. And so I'm just like not going to put up the wall that I have and just right. be like, this is my fucking life and it sucks. Are these the only ways that people are exposed as far as like accidental, in the house, intentional as a form of suicide, or what about natural gas? So natural gas is different. Carbon monoxide is created from the incomplete combustion of gas, like gasoline, anything that has carbon Mm. and is odorless. Natural gas leaks are literally leaks of the stored gas that you intend to use for some purpose. And they're usually odorized so that they smell like rotten eggs or something else pungent with sulfur. Mm, there's at least a way for you to know that this is happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your carbon monoxide detector cannot detect natural gas. You need to just kind of use your nose to figure that out. And you also can't be poisoned by natural gas, but you can die from suffocation because of the lack of oxygen in the air. Oh, so eventually there's more natural gas in the air than, than oxygen. oxygen. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yes. What about carbon dioxide versus carbon monoxide? I mean, I one versus two? Yes. So carbon dioxide has two oxygens. Carbon monoxide has one oxygen. Carbon dioxide is what we breathe out, and it's easy to get them confused. And like, mm-hmm. I don't judge anybody who says die when they mean mono. I'm not going to judge you. If like in the context, they probably know what you mean. But it's not usually as dangerous, although it can be in very small spaces. So mm-hmm. carbon dioxide is what is emitted by the sublimation of dry ice. And so you don't want to be in an enclosed space with dry ice, but you can also put a little bit of dry ice in like your soda at Halloween and you'll be fine as long as you're not just mm. like, <sighs> like breathing <laughs> right. in the carbon Huffing. dioxide. Yeah, Don't do that. Don't yeah. have dry ice, guys. Yeah. And so I haven't found any criminal or true crimey cases, but we could probably have an entire other episode about carbon dioxide because it can be dangerous in confined spaces. Like you don't want to be car camping or something and sleep in your car and have the the ice make it so that your car isn't ventilated because you don't have oxygen and now you're just surrounded with carbon dioxide so can be dangerous but not as dangerous as carbon monoxide got it yeah. the one is more powerful so nobody can see this except you but like so carbon dioxide forms this little like tripod right because it's carbon at the center and then oxygen and oxygen so it's a tripod mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. its shape carbon monoxide is just straight because mm-hmm. it's a triple bond i think c triple bonded o and so that's mm-hmm. why it it binds so well to the hemoglobin there's kind of this hallway almost of like the hemoglobin will let you bind because of what's called steric hindrance and so all of the other shit that's going on on hemoglobin is repelling stuff away and so you only have this really narrow place where you can bind in hemoglobin and it's just like Yeah, yeah, it just fits perfectly in there. And Mm. O2 is kind of tilted, and so it kind of fits in the hallway, but not as well. And carbon dioxide, the tripod, just wouldn't fit in that binding. Yep. Okay. And that's how it works. (laughs) Neat. (laughs) 
So how easy is it from a toxicologist standpoint to test for carbon monoxide poisoning? Is it usually pretty apparent when somebody passes that they passed away from this? Or do you have some type of suspicion and then test for it specifically? I would say it can be very apparent because you get what's called a cherry red lividity. So when the carbon monoxide binds to your hemoglobin, it causes your blood to be very red. And so when you die, your whole body, and especially where blood settles in the body, becomes very red. And so mm. that's that's a pretty significant indicator that this was carbon monoxide and it doesn't tend to happen with anything else. But in terms of if you're not quite sure if somebody was exposed, it is quite easy to test for carbon monoxide because we test for the concentration of carboxyhemoglobin in your blood. Oh, okay. So anything over 30% indicates severe exposure. And we could do this at the coroner's office for decedents, but you can also do it on living people. You can take a sample of your blood and then you can Mm. test it and say, oh, this is what percent carbon monoxide you're at. And so five to six was normal for smokers. And anything over 80, you were just like, yeah, this is carbon monoxide. Uh, Yeah. We had to test it for all motor vehicle accidents because even though most newer cars, there isn't that chance of carbon monoxide Mm -hmm. poisoning, they still wanted us to check for carbon monoxide exposure. And then infants are also particularly susceptible to poisoning. And so all sudden infant deaths had to be tested for carbon monoxide. Oh. And then older people are also more susceptible. And so a lot of the times, if they kind of suspected that maybe it was just a fall or what was called a global geriatric decline where you kind of just get old and die, Mm -hmm. they they might still have a student a carbon monoxide just to be sure does it having an oxygen machine mm-hmm. in your house affect anything at all I mean, that would probably make it so that you're less susceptible to carbon monoxide because the treatment for carbon monoxide is 100% oxygen just applied therapeutically until you're not dizzy anymore. So, I mean, that could probably help. Yeah. I know if you have an oxygen machine, you shouldn't smoke around it or light matches. Maybe that would... If you're on oxygen, but Mm -hmm. you have a carbon monoxide leak, like you just keep outpowering it? Potentially. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it does go directly into your Mm -hmm. nose, but I don't know about what you're breathing in through your mouth. So I don't know what that would do in terms of the concentration. Everybody should have a carbon monoxide detector and check it regularly. (laughs) Yes. Thankfully, my landlord, they do a yearly visit and check it. And it makes me, because I don't know that I'd remember. So be better than me. Do better. I have it in my bullet journal that I'm supposed to check it like monthly just to be good. I'm supposed to check my smoke alarms and carbon monoxide alarms. And it's been like three months. And like I told myself today before recording <laughs> this episode, I was like, check your alarms. And then I was this like, was what? Timely. <laughs> yeah, this exactly. Timely. Exactly. We need to have an R. Bradbury 1920 post-it note <laughs> on our desk to check our carbon monoxide <laughs> alarms. Love R. Bradbury. Right. And then another thing with the testing for carbon monoxide is if there was enough blood to test for like a fire case, if there's Mm -hmm. enough blood left in the body, Mm -hmm. then the coroner or medical examiner could use the carboxyhemoglobin concentration to determine if a person died from the fire or if they died from smoke inhalation. Smoke inhalation, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can test the blood. And sometimes there wouldn't be enough blood left, not to get too graphic, but sometimes the body just wouldn't be moist anymore. Mm -hmm. And then if there was still head and neck available, then you can actually look in the throat and you can tell if somebody died prior to or during the fire if there's the presence of soot in the throat. Interesting. Because a lot of people try to destroy the evidence Mm -hmm. of a murder by lighting like the house on fire or whatever. Right. They'll never be able to know. And that's always one of the things that come up like they were dead before the fire started. Exactly. Because there's no carbon monoxide and there's no soot in the throat. 
Wow. I love it. I feel so smart. The more you know. Yes. (laughs) So is the oxygen really the only way to treat it? Or is there anything else that they do if you've been poisoned with carbon monoxide and you don't die and they catch it? That's pretty much all you can do. You need oxygen replacement therapy. And then I I do recommend that people remove yourself from whatever is exposing you to carbon monoxide, fix whatever is exposing you to carbon monoxide, and then get the oxygen therapy. And even if you're just a little headachy and you're like, whew, close call, like I would still see a doctor and be like, hey, I was recently exposed to carbon monoxide because you could have that delayed onset of even more severe symptoms. Mm, And so mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot that can be done, but you do need to be monitored afterwards just in case. I feel like this is one of the first episodes in a while where there's like a nice, pretty simple treatment for (laughs) poisoning. Yeah, get away from the poison. Get away from the poison, get oxygen, Mm -hmm. and then you'll be set. Which is what's tragic about the Conrad Roy case is that all he needed was to get help, to be taken away from the carbon monoxide, to get out of his truck and stay out of his truck. And he would have at least survived this attempt. But Michelle Carter told him to get back in the truck. Yeah, it's really sad that it could have been so simple. Yeah. So I guess let's recap what we learned today. What did we learn? We learned that carbon monoxide is just the one. There's not two. That's carbon dioxide. That's not what we're talking about. Carbon monoxide's the bad one. Mm-hmm. And if you start to feel headachy, nauseous, kind of out of sorts, I guess would be a good way to put it. Yeah, flu-like but no fever. Okay. And if your heart's racing and you just feel not okay, mm-hmm. get some fresh air. Yeah. Figure it out. Or if you think uh, your apartment's haunted. Yeah, if, yeah, if you think your apartment's haunted, it might just be carbon monoxide. Like, don't go right to there's a poltergeist living in your cabinets. Yeah. And check your carbon monoxide detectors. Yes, PSA. Them, check them. Check your detectors. Clapping yes. hands. Yes. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's be great humans that are responsible and we check our fire alarms we check that battery yeah i'm gonna go check my alarms today i promise Mm -hmm. i promise Mm -hmm. everyone (laughs) like i just said there's actually a treatment it is not Mm -hmm. game over yeah it is not game over so i feel i think this is the first one in a while where i feel more informed and less scared scared. (laughs) exactly because i almost always leave recording go what a scary world we live in yeah but now i feel like i have the power of knowledge Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. outweighs the fear of the threat yes and remember everybody i encourage you to sign up for patreon because along with all the goodies that you get normally we are doing a microdose that is related to carbon monoxide coming up soon Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power, and it's only $2, and you can support us. It's less than a cup of coffee. It's less than getting batteries for your carbon carbon monoxide monoxide detectors. (laughs) Do both. So step one, get a carbon monoxide detector. Step two, check out Lethal Dose Patreon. Yeah. We'll keep you safe and informed. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend, Fogweaver. 
More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison. Thank you.